Well, brethren, as you find your seats, find in your Bibles, Revelation and chapter 17. Now, you might know that chapter 17 to 19 contain the sixth of seven cycles which describe the time frame between the first and second comings of Christ. So we start the sixth of seven units with chapter 17, and it runs through 19. And these three chapters, or perhaps we can say, and thus these three chapters really have as its major theme that of Babylon. And we're going to see in chapter 17, we have something of a description of the nature of Babylon. And then in chapter 18, the fall of Babylon. And then in chapter 19, the church's response to the fall of Babylon. So these three chapters necessarily go together. Chapter 17, we have a description concerning the nature of this great city called Babylon. Now, also by way of introduction, chapter 17 really has two halves or two parts. In verses 1 to 6, we have a description of Babylon. But in chapter, that's in verses 1 to 6, but in verses 7 to the end, verse 18, we really have the interpretation of that description. So in the first half, we have a description. The second half, the interpretation. That's going to help us out because probably, well, not probably, let me say dogmatically and assuredly, we come tonight to some of the most difficult things in the entirety of this last book of our Bibles. We haven't seen really anything as complicated as we'll come to tonight. But the, uh, the good news is, well, that good news is really several fold. One, we have the interpretation, largely speaking, beginning at verse 7. Secondly, even though some of these things aren't as clear as we would wish, the main or broad strokes are very clear. So we just have to do as we've done, brethren, in previous studies, focus on the main and clear things. But there, as I've said, by God's kindness is the provision of the interpretation of the description beginning at verse 7. And for, those re- or for that reason, and because our time is going to move very quickly, I'm going to forego reading verses 7 to 18 and just mention it as we come through the exposition. All right, notice then Revelation 17, verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many Waters. Now we're going to see that that great harlot is identified as Babylon. And here we have a reference back to Jeremiah, where Babylon, literal Babylon, sat on the edge of many waters. That's how it's called in Jeremiah 51.13, which of course had reference largely to the Euphrates. So everything in here is, is just a wonderful description, or perhaps a tragic description, of that Ancient city spiritualized. That's what we see here in a moment. All right. Verse 2. With whom the kings of the earth committed fornication and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names and blasphemy, 
having seven heads and, and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. Now, she hasn't been identified yet, has she? She's just been called a woman and described in certain ways. But now we come in verse 5 to find out who she is. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. Verse 6, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus, And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. Now, just notice verse 7. I said that you have a description in verses 1 to 6, and then the interpretation in verse 7 and following. Verse 7 reads, But the angel said to me, Why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. And now he's going to give us something of an interpretation or an explanation of that woman. All right, now let me uh, suggest that we can consider this woman under these two headings. First, her identity, and then secondly, her beast. First, I want to seek to, to identify her, and there's ample material here to do that. And then we have to spend some time with the second heading here and the most difficult of the two, and that is to understand what is meant by the beast upon which she sat. Okay? Now, she's called the great heart. Now, first of all, let's come then to her identity. And notice in verse 1, she's called the great harlot. And then in verse 18, that great city. Okay, so she's described in two ways, as a woman and as a city. A great harlot and a great city. Now, these are in contrast to Christians who everywhere, and especially in the book of Revelation, and even in this very chapter, are described as pure and or virgins, in contrast to the whore or harlot, and the beloved and holy city, in contrast to the great and wicked city of Babylon. So as we'll see here in a moment, really what we have beginning at chapter 17 to the end of the book is something of a contrast between two women, one's a harlot, one's pure, that's the bride, and or two cities. And we're going to find those coming together beautifully, especially in chapters 21 and 2. Just go in your mind for a second to chapter 21. You probably have it memorized. You have a bride, beautifully adorned, in contrast to the harlot's apparel. And you have a great city. And the city that comes down is holy and is then said to be the bride. Well, here you have the opposite of that. The woman who's a harlot in the city, that's rebellious. But we don't have to really ask a lot of questions with regards to the identity of the woman because we find that her name is upon her forehead. Verse 5. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery Babylon the Great, 
the mother of harlots, and of the abominations of the earth. Now again, it's important to notice that throughout this chapter and the following ones, this world is described with two different imageries, a woman in a city. And you find it right here in verse 5. Babylon the Great, that's a city. The mother of, of harlots and of the abominations of the earth, that's a woman. Rather than again, if we just start with that which is clear, the less clear will be cleared up some. And you'll find out that some of those things that, are, that, that still aren't that clear aren't that important. They're important, don't get me wrong, if they're in the Bible, but they're less important. All right, so we want to look at these two phrases, Babylon the Great and the Mother of Harlots and of the Abominations of the Earth. That's one phrase. But before I do that, uh, we find, first of all, that this name, this twofold name, Babylon and the Harlot, are a mystery. And then I've said already, haven't I, beginning at, seven, at verse 7, you have the interpretation of this mystery. And the angel said to me, why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. And then he goes on to describe what is the beast, etc. Now, you know that a mystery is a biblical mystery is something that was previously hidden and thus in need of being revealed. Uh, there's a lot of mysteries in that sense. All of the scripture is in one sense a mystery in that it's revelation that would have remained hidden had it not been revealed. But here we find that this mystery of the identity of the woman is revealed for us and it's revealed beginning at verse 7 and following, yes, but it's actually revealed following the word mystery. In other words, here's the interpretation of this mystery. Here's the identity of this woman. And then we have, of course, this twofold description, a city and a woman. So notice first, Babylon the Great. Now, you probably know the literal city of Babylon had its beginning way back in Genesis 11 and verse 4. Well, it had its beginning, I guess, in chapter 10. But we read in chapter 11 and verse 4 what the inhabitants of that city said. Come, let us build ourselves a city. It's very evident, isn't it, brethren, that the idea or notion of a great city is borrowed from Babylon that, that great arch enemy of, of God's people found in the Old Testament, but also here in its beginnings, in Babel, because we find that the inhabitants of that city said, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. And so what they're doing there is they're, they're doing the very same thing in Genesis 11 as they're going to be doing here in a moment in Revelation 17. They're gathering together to form an army against God. Brother, that's exactly what they were doing back in Genesis 11, verse 4. And then we read later in verse 9, Therefore, Moses goes on to say, Its name 
is called Babel. Now, it wasn't just that the tower was called Babel because we just read that it was a city with a tower in it. So the city, which had a tower, was called Babel. Now, you know, Babel literally means confusion. And that text goes on to say, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. In other words, he brought judgment He dispersed, he did away with their scheme. So we can do a quick biblical theology of Babylon by going back, first of all, to Genesis 10 and 11 and find its origin in the city slash tower of Babel. And there man gathered together to rebel against God. And then, of course, we know the city of Babylon with Nebuchadnezzar and others as kings, as I said, is the grand enemy of God's people throughout the Old Testament. And that's why in the New Testament, not only in Revelation, but predominantly in the book of Revelation, this world filled with the enemies of God is likened to Babylon the Great. Babylon the Great. Thus put simply, by Babylon is meant the entire world viewed as one great, prideful, and rebellious city. Brooks said, Babylon in the book of Revelation stands for the world with all its seductions and charms, the world reserved for destruction. Or else Henriksen, Babylon indicates the world as a center of industry, commerce, art, culture, etc. Which by means of all of these things seeks to entice and seduce the believer, that is to turn him away from God. A city is organized, a city is powerful, and that's why the world here is likened to a city. But not just any city, brethren, one that's an avowed enemy of God, filled with prideful, wicked, evil, rebellious people. All right, then notice the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. This world is not only likened to this woman, this world, it's not only likened to a city, but to a woman. And here the imagery switches and yet communicates fundamentally the same thing. And you know that the scriptures oftentimes describe the world with one of these two imageries, an immoral woman. We saw that, didn't we, uh, back in our study of the book of Proverbs, and a mighty and rebellious city. Thus, when Babylon is called the mother of harlots, It means she's the promoter of spiritual harlotry and or fornication. And the word translated abominations refers to something detestable or vile and is almost always associated with idolatry. And so that's why I've said that uh, by mother of harlots, it's foremostly meant spiritual 
adultery. Or another way of putting it would be idolatry. So she's the mother, she's the cause, she's the promoter of idolatry in the world. Idolatry, of course, is the worship of anything equal to or in the place of God. And so we find that this great woman, this world, is likened first to Babylon the Great and secondly the mother of idolatry. And so within verse 2 and 4, we learn that she has a cup with which, verse 2, the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. This is just another way of saying she entices the people of this world to commit spiritual adultery and or fornication, which again is idolatry. Verse 4 describes her as immodest, or as dressed with excessive glitter, and verse 6, as drunk with the blood of the saints. In other words, while she entices the inhabitants of the world by her beauty, she persecutes and or puts to death Christians. All right, so that's something of her identity. The woman is Babylon, the mother of, of harlots. Now for the difficult part, that brings us secondly to her beast, verse 3. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman, that's the same woman that we've just identified, sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and seven uh, and ten horns. Now, to say that the woman sat on the beast simply means she was upheld by the beast, she was built upon the beast, or else she's closely aligned with the beast. By beast is meant the collective political force and influence of this world, the power and might of Babylon. And so while we're distinguishing the woman from the beast, the two really go together. Remember, this, these imageries are simply describing this Satan-influenced and controlled world. These are just different ways of describing the world. And there's a couple of things that we find true of the beast. First of all, in verse 3. There's seven heads, and then there's ten horns. Notice first the seven heads, and as I've said, beginning at verse 7, you have these things interpreted. So we can go to verse 9 and find the uh, inspired um, interpretation of what's meant by the seven heads. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Now we have to seek to understand what that means, but nevertheless, I think it's rather obvious, I hope, by the seven mountains is met Rome. Rome, of course, was built on seven hills or seven mountains. But then, to complicate things a little bit, verse 10, there 
uh, are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come, and when he comes, he must continue a short time. In other words, these seven heads are not only seven mountains, they are seven mountains, and so we just have to keep in mind that in the first place, it's most likely a reference to Rome as the historical manifestation in the first century of this wicked woman. And then there's this mention of seven kings. The mountains are also kings. You know that in the book of Daniel and and other places, mountains are often put in the place of kings. So because of that, most commentators understand by seven kings the seven emperors of Rome. That's possible. Or else it just is referring to the seven, seven kings Five of them are, and their kingdoms, <clears throat> five of them are past, there presently was one, and there's more to come. But what's important here, I think, is that John is speaking of Rome as an example, as a historical expression or manifestation of this woman. And so we find that Rome was the first century revelation or manifestation of the beast and the woman who sat upon it. Rome sought to seduce Christians with its immorality, like the woman. Rome sought to threaten and frighten and put to death Christians as the beast. That's why she's drunk, verse 6, with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Brethren, any first century Christian reading this would have most likely understood by the seven heads and the seven kings or the rulers of those seven heads, Rome. Again, Rome as representative of this woman and the beast upon which she sat. In other words, this world's persecution and enticement of the church. Now we find also that uh, these kings, this beast uh, referenced in verse 8, and then the kings referenced in verse 10, are closely connected. In fact, if you went and compared verse 8 with verse 10, you'd find the same things said of the beast are said of the kings. Look at verse 10. There are also seven kings, five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet to come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. Whoever is meant by that, brethren, whatever is going on in verse 10, it's evident that it's connecting it back to the beast of verse 10, of verse 8. It's just simply saying that the beast was, is, and will be. It's really a parody, a mockery of what's said of God uh, on several occasions earlier in the book of Revelation. He was, is, and will be. That's true in the fullest sense. God is in history, and he's working throughout history, The beast likewise is in history and will work throughout the time span between the first and second comings of Christ. 
So we know that the beast is the political and and associated with the beast is the false prophet, the religious perversion, or perhaps we can say the uh, manifestations of the dragon within the world. And so we find that the beast and the kings are necessarily connected and uh, whoever is meant, either the, uh, the emperors of Rome or else just the kingdoms of the world, there has been some, there was, and there will be. That's the main point. The main point is, is, that, the, is that the beast will never lack a kingdom in this world. There's always going to be a beast. There's always going to be a Rome, if you will, within this time frame of history. All right, so then you have also, back in verse 3, ten horns at the end of it. And we find the uh, interpretation of those in verse 12. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. And again, these ten kings are closely identified with the beast. Who are these ten kings? And kingdoms, I don't know. It's possible that they're referring to ten literal kings or kingdoms. I think that's highly improbable. It's most likely that they're simply speaking of worldly rulers who will yet come. Brother, I think it's just saying the same thing as the seven kings said with reference to the beast. He was, he is, and he will be. This is just focusing upon the fact that there will always be a Rome of sorts in this world. I mean, remember that the book of Revelation wasn't merely written for the edification of the first century church, but it anticipated the church to come. And if the book of Revelation anticipated the church to come, then of necessity it anticipated the beast to come, or the kings of this world. In other words, by the ten kings, I think, is simply meant those kingdoms of this world, like Rome, that would come after Rome. And notice they give their power and authority, verse 13, to the beast. Again, all of these kings, whoever is meant by them, the seven kings and then the ten kings... They're all closely aligned to the beast. Verse 13. These are of one mind. Okay, so who's of one mind? The ten kings. Why? Because they make up ultimately one city. And they give their power and authority to the beast. And then we'll see in a minute in verse 14. They collectively with one mind... Make war with the land. Now, verses 16 and 17 provide an interesting twist to the saga. The kings and beast, remember the kings and beast are one, they go together, so we could say the kings or we could say the beast, turn against the woman and devour her. Verse 16, and the ten horns which you saw on the beast. See, they're actually a part of the beast. They're the ten horns of the beast. And the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot, 
make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. (laughs) I'm not laughing because that's funny. I'm laughing because it just seems to get a little bit more difficult towards the end there. Because how can these two, why, how can the beast, why would the beast turn against the harlot? Aren't they united in their efforts, in their intentions? Yes, they are united in their efforts and intentions. So much so that the harlot rides upon the back of the beast. The woman sits on the beast. But I think what we have in verse 16 and 17 is this, is at the end... When the kings of this world face the lamb and see what their allegiance to the harlot cost them, they turn upon her. Because uh, verse 14 speaks about how the uh, those who've joined forces with the harlot, the kings of this world will be destroyed. So I think verses 16 and 17 is simply speaking about the fact that the wicked in the day of judgment will regret their full-hearted allegiance to this wicked woman. Now, uh, we don't have the time, but if we went back to the book of uh, Proverbs, actually we'd find some uh, help there. Because it talks about the simple person, the foolish person, who goes down to the house of the harlot. And if you remember when we interpreted those phrases in Proverbs, I said that they do refer to a literal harlot or a literal literal prostitute, but they have a bigger and broader application to this world. And they go down there and then they find out when it's too late that her house is in the path of death. That's what you have here, brother. And you have here the people of this world, the kings of this world, coming to see that what they are going to receive for their allegiance to the woman wasn't worth it. I suggest to you that you really find it uh, illustrated in a small way in Judas. Remember, Judas aligned himself, as it were, with the harlot. And uh, what happened at the end of his life? He threw down the money and he regretted it. But it was too late, brethren. I think that's the idea here. And the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot. They will hate the harlot because of what it costs for, for them to have allegiance with her and they will turn on here on her but it will be too late and all of this ultimately is within or under God's sovereign control verse 17 for God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose to be of one mind and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled in other words all of this the destruction of those who pledge allegiance to the harlot and turn upon her, albeit it's too late, is all within the sovereign purposes of God himself. And the woman, verse 18, whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. 
All right, so in closing, let me suggest some lessons that are most evident and clear within this admittedly less than clear chapter. And they all have to do with this single word, world. Now, admittedly, the term world isn't found in the 18 verses of Revelation 17. But brethren, this chapter is a warning. It's a description and a warning concerning the world. Because keep in mind, who is this woman? But the world. The world considered as a city, the world considered as a harlot. The world considered as that which kills Christians and that which entices Christians. But before I do that, let me provide a simple definition of what I mean here by world. Simply put, by world is meant, because you know that the Bible uses the word world differently. But by world here I mean fallen humanity controlled by Satan and in rebellion to God. Fallen humanity controlled by Satan and in rebellion to God. Well, in light of that definition and the teaching of Revelation 17, notice lesson number one. The world is satanic. Brethren, whatever is going on in this chapter, surely we can all agree to this, that this is a very evil and wicked woman who's controlled by or she's affiliated with the beast who's controlled by the dragon. Keep in mind what we've seen thus far. Remember the dragon, the two beasts, and the woman. And by the dragon is meant Satan. By the two beasts is meant his influence into this world or woman. His influence into and upon the woman. Brother, I think this lesson is rather easy to overlook. And the reason being, Satan dresses the world in fine apparel. The world looks from all appearance to be something pleasant. I think that's why in part the woman is arrayed in verse 4 with purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abomination. This is all enticing. A golden cup. You would think there would be something good in the cup, but brethren, look what's inside of it. It's full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. Friends, we should never be surprised when the world, when the world says, believes, and or does things contrary to the Scriptures. I think most of us are familiar with Augustine's well-known treatise called The City of God. And I went back and skimmed through a part of that this afternoon. 
And uh, you might know that it's actually, though it's entitled the city of God, it's actually a story of two cities. And the reason why it's called the city of God is because one of those cities is the new Jerusalem. That's the church, the people of God. And the other city is the world. So while one city may be larger than the other, all of humanity constitutes but two cities. Yes, there's different countries in the world, and there's a number of different cities in the world, but technically speaking, there's only two. There's the city of God and the city of Satan. And listen to what Augustine said in terms of, um, in this paragraph, he's contrasting the two. He says they're very different. He has a lengthy passage, but I just cut out a part of it. And I didn't have time to go back and modernize it, so I'm just going to read it as is. And thus, it has come to pass that though there are very many and great nations all over the earth whose rights, R-I-T-S, and customs, speech, arms, and dress are distinguished by marked differences. In other words, there are many different kinds of people. There's many different traditions. He goes on to say, yet there are no more than two kinds of human society, which we may justly call two cities, according to the language of our scriptures. The one consists of those who wish to live after the flesh, the other of those who wish to live after the spirit. And when they severally achieve what they wish, they live in peace, each after its kind. In other words, the citizens of the two cities live in accord with that city's policies. One, of course, is the city of peace and righteousness. The other, wicked, wickedness and rebellion. So through this section of the Bible, we do have justification for Augustine's great division or treatise, don't we? There are two cities. But you find it all over the place, brethren, in the, New and, and Old, in the Old and in the New Testaments. For example, think about all the places where we have a contrast between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. What is that? But the same thing just in a little different way. We're all born into the kingdom of the world. We're all born, brethren, by nature, into this world, into the city of Satan. And we're reborn or translated by grace into the city of God. And that's why those who are in the city of God are described at the end of verse 14 as being with the Lamb. And they're described as being called. What does that mean? It means being called out of the world. Called out of the one kingdom into the next. Chosen. Why did he call them? Because he chose them. And faithful. Why are they faithful? Because he's with them. And then uh, just go back and think how 
the world is described. Those citizens of, of the other city are described in this passage. Brethren, they're not described in a very positive way. They're drunk with the fornication and the abominations of the harlot. And that's why, in contrast to that, Christians at the end of 14 are described as faithful. They're pure. They're not drunk with the fornications and abominations of the harlot. Brethren, it's, it's kind of, I, I admit it might be a bit um, strong imagery, isn't it? But it's all throughout the Bible, and it's especially found in these three chapters in the last book of the Bible. And that leads me to my second lesson. The world is not only satanic. By the way, I forgot to quote that text, 1 John five nineteen. We know that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. The whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. But secondly, the world is dangerous. Brethren, it's dangerous. And that's why I like the imagery of the Pilgrim's Progress. He's, he's in a dangerous place. Or, or else the imagery that Paul uh, develops in, in Ephesians 6. That we're to put on the whole armor of God. Because we're in a, a battle of sorts. And in fact, we're even behind enemy lines. Our city is within this city. And thus the world is dangerous in two ways. One, it threatens as the beast and it seduces as the woman. I think that's why the chapter starts by describing the world as the great whore or harlot, verse 1, and the great city, verse 18. And you put them on the bookends and there we are right in the middle. Verse 14. We got all of her threatening on one side and all of her enticements on the other. In fact, you might know that uh, I think Peter picks up on this fact when he ends his first letter in chapter 5 by saying in verse 13 in closing, she who is in Babylon elect together with you greets you. Do you know, a lot of the older translations like um, the Latin translation and stuff like that actually has the church in Babylon elect together with you, greet you. Because she is supplied by the translators. It could be church, it could be she. But the point being, it's likely a reference to the church from which Peter was writing. Brother, Peter wasn't writing from a literal, a literal city named Babylon. He's saying, I'm writing within this Babylon. And I'm writing... I'm writing within this Babylon from a church. I'm writing from a city within a city. And that's why throughout the first letter of Peter, he tells us to be alert and to be careful. Why? Because there's a devil on this side. There's a beast on that side. And there's a harlot on the other side. If you went back and read through 1 Peter with, that, with those lens, you would see that Peter is speaking in a way so as to warn his hearers that they are presently in a very dangerous world. The problem is, brethren, we just don't, all, we just don't oftentimes remind ourselves of the danger. And uh, those who don't find out the hard way, don't we? 
that we are at present in the middle of chapter 17. I don't, quite frankly, I don't want to be impolite, okay? My wife says I'm going to now say something impolite. But I don't really care, to be honest, what some of these phrases mean in chapter 17. I mean, I, I, in heaven I'll know. We probably won't know till then. Because what's the main point of chapter 17 is screaming from the pages of this holy book. And the problem is, is we can go and fight over the seven kings and the ten kings. And what does this mean and what does that mean? Well, man, I don't know. And you don't and nobody else does. I guarantee you it. I got 15 commentators on, on Revelation. The best ones. And they all, they all can set out their... their their, their guesses. But what is evident and what is clear is that we're in the middle of chapter 17 and the world on one hand is likened to a harlot and on the other a great city. So the world is satanic. It is under the sway of the evil one. It is dangerous. It does threaten us as the beast. And it seeks to seduce us as the woman. But finally, thirdly, the world is doomed. And by this I mean the scripture plainly describes this chapter. Plainly describes the destiny of Babylon. Now we're going to find it even more graphically described in chapter 18. That's what the whole chapter is about. But over and over again and again, this chapter describes the certain doom of this wicked, evil, godless world. Verse 14. Those will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them. For He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with Him are called, chosen, and faithful. Whoever the seven kings are, whoever the ten kings are, the beast and the woman will make war with the lamb. And brethren, the lamb wins. Very simply, the lamb wins. So whatever this chapter means, I suggest it provides us at least with these exhortations. One, the world is satanic. Two, it's dangerous. And thirdly, it's doomed. Well, may God give us grace to hear what His Spirit says to His church. Well, as we transition.